0: There is nothing to be afraid of. There is nothing to be afraid of. Have you ever heard this phrase uttered in your life? You hear it a lot as a child, don't you? Perhaps when you're learning how to ride a bike. Daddy, daddy, don't let go. Don't worry. There's nothing to be afraid of. I remember going fishing with my father once, uh, many years ago as a young child, and I remember crossing over this vast gorge to go fishing. I mean, there must have been a hundred feet drop beneath the bridge. I remember this so well because all of the boards in that bridge were just crumbling apart. and You had to sort of step over broken pieces of wood just to make it across. I'm sure it was like a small creek, maybe five feet down below but I was terrified until my dad took my hand and said there's nothing to be afraid of and he was right we made it and I'm here to tell a tale but things get real when it isn't imminent death that worries us but rejection what if I ask her out and she says no Well, there's nothing to be afraid of. She's not going to bite you. The birth of a child or maybe flying in an airplane or standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon or the Empire State Building or jumping out of an airplane with a parachute on your back. That's never happened to me. I will never do that. There's nothing to be afraid of, of course, right? The doctors are right here, aren't they? The planes rarely crash. And walls keep people, for the most part, from falling into canyons or off of buildings. And parachutes usually work. We face fears throughout our lives. And most of the time, we learn that there really is nothing to be afraid of at all. Except for maybe the parachute thing. So developing the virtue of courage is not leaving fear behind, as we often think, but doing what is necessary despite our fear. But it's been my experience that no matter how many times I overcome fear, there's always more fear to discover. Our Romans text this evening is a bit of a capstone Of what previous chapters, uh, of all of the previous chapters that Paul has been uh, leading up to this point. So, after St. Paul has been telling us what Christ has accomplished and how we benefit from and even participate in the events of Jesus' life, he brings us to this great conclusion that there is nothing to be afraid of because we are inseparable from the love of Christ which is a love that has already conquered our fears. We are inseparable from the love of Christ, which is a love that has already conquered all of our fears. The last several weeks, we've been at St. Paul's Grand Epistle to the uh, Roman Christians in order that we might better understand what we mean when we talk about the gospel. At Mission St. James, if we're going to be a place for the wanderer to dwell, we need to know why the church is a place worth dwelling in, don't we? Meaning that the gospel must be proclaimed and lived out if we are to be a true home for those who need it. For the last several chapters of Romans, St. Paul has, been make, has made clear The events of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection have implications for those of us who believe. By faith, we are justified and reconciled, and this is a free gift of grace. And not only that, but we are baptized into his death and raised to new life. Well, the last week or two, he has acknowledged that suffering will take place in this life, But we still have hope. We will share in Christ's glorification, which will put our sufferings to shame by comparison. And last week, we were left with the promise that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. He concluded with these words, If God is for us, who can be against us? So we do not suffer alone, brothers and sisters, but are inhabited by the Holy Spirit, through whom we groan for our full, with whom we groan for our full redemption. And today's short text brings us to the precipice of what excited St. Paul so much, that despite the suffering and danger, there is nothing to be afraid of. We begin in chapter 8, verse 35, if you want to follow along in your bulletin. There he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Now, there's nothing more frustrating, I think, than getting an answer to a question you never asked. So this has actually been a real challenge to me and for me in preaching. And I imagine it's a challenge in reading the Bible in general for most of us. Because sometimes the biblical writers take strange twists and turns that we don't anticipate. And as a result, we often kind of tune out to what's being said. So so it is with this question. We don't necessarily anticipate this question Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So why does he ask this question? Well, one reason is that he has been trying to get us to understand our relationship to the law in the previous chapters. The law is good, but we are incapable of keeping it. And this is vitally important because because it's natural for us to assume that our disobedience disqualifies us from God's love. It's a natural thing for us to think that our disobedience disqualifies us from God's love. I don't care how many times you've read the book of Romans or the entire Bible. It's a persistent problem that we have. It's like a child who disobeys her parents. She knows she's done wrong, right? And she's suffered the consequences. And she's afraid that mom and dad no longer love her like they once did. In a sense, she's been separated from their love—not in reality, but in her mind—and this is why I think it's imperative that children assure their, that parents assure their children that they love them, even while they discipline them. Except not while you're angry; it has the opposite effect. This is why Paul was talking about a couple uh, a couple of weeks ago when he said that we are no longer slaves to what? To fear, he said. God's love is not dependent on our obedience. God's love is not dependent on our obedience. You may remember from chapter 6 that our old self was crucified with Christ because we are united in both his death and his resurrection. We are also raised to walk in newness of life. Our relationship to God has been completely changed. We are now sons and daughters, beloved of God, not slaves to sin and fear as we once were, and that is good news. But as I said earlier, fear persists, doesn't it? A few weeks ago, I mentioned the rite of reconciliation in a sermon or the rite of confession. I know and I realize this didn't land on everyone quite the same way. So some might have sort of a Roman Catholic understanding of this rite of confession. I must assure you, that the Anglican view of confession is not the same. So I want to illustrate it like this. You know when you're faced with some kind of temptation, maybe a, a temptation that's besetting, that you struggle with over and over, and, and, and once again you succumb to the temptation. Uh, this is, uh, let's just think about the psychology that happens to us when, that, when, when we go through that. Even if our immediate response to disobedience to God is to confess that sin to him, there's something else that happens, right? It's a lot easier to distract ourselves with something frivolous than it is to go to God in intimate prayer. It's like Adam and Eve did in the garden, right? When they sin, what do they do? They were afraid and they hid. So this is what often happens for us as well. Shame takes over and seeking intimate prayer time with the Lord is the last thing we want to do. We become afraid. But I think last week's Collect of the Day says it well, you may remember this, and it asks this, Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we to pray. Isn't that beautiful? And then he says, pour down upon us, The abundance of your mercy, forgiving us those things of which our conscience is afraid. You see, we hide because we are afraid. Confession in the Roman Catholic Church is caught up in a sacramental system that says you must confess your sins to a priest before you receive Holy Communion because you are in a state of sin. Confession to God alone is not enough. And Anglicans patently reject this. You could read this in the 39 articles in the back of your, uh, your uh, BCP. The Anglican rite of confession is an opportunity to face something your conscience is afraid of. And what you discover is that there was nothing to be afraid of in the per- first place. Why? Because you have already been reconciled to God. You have already been reconciled to God. That was Paul's whole point in chapter 3. And this is precisely why Paul asks this question, what can separate us from the love of Christ? So that was a long answer to that original question. Why Why did Paul say this and ask this? It's as if he's gone all the way back several chapters and asked a question that he spends a lot of time answering up until this point. So we should already know the answer what shall separate us nothing but you say well what about tribulation and what about distress and persecution famine and nakedness danger and sword there are plenty of things for us to be afraid of in this life but it's interesting to note that paul tells us elsewhere in second corinthians chapter 11 that all of those things famine and tribulation and persecution and danger, all of those things listed there, he suffered himself. This is his resume of suffering for Christ so that, when he, so that what he declares in this text, he does with credibility, doesn't he? It's not like me standing here and saying that your sufferings don't separate you from, the, from God when I haven't suffered what you have suffered. Paul's doing it with credibility, Paul's saying, I willingly suffer all of this. That's how sure I am that nothing can separate me nor you from the love of Christ. Now, these aren't the full scope of what we are afraid of, are we? Is it? Our conscience is often afraid of our sin, as we already said. The fear Paul is now talking about is the fear that keeps us from living a full life of obedience to Christ. Here, Paul is saying, the gospel is going to cost you. He's saying that you will not enjoy the luxuries of a Christless life. So don't be surprised when your faith results in tribulation and persecution. Don't shy away from God's call just because it's a little dangerous. Following Jesus will mean that you will likely make less money than your peers. Following Jesus will mean that you are led into dangerous situations. We pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters every Sunday here because there are places in the world where baptism carries the penalty of death. This is why St. Paul quotes uh, Psalm 44. If you read that psalm, if you went back and read the psalm, you'll see that there is a vast disconnection between what God did for the Israelites at the Red Sea and the Exodus and what they are experiencing at the time that psalm is written. Verse 22, he's what he quotes, and it says, For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. For whose sake? Well, for God's sake. The message here is that persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ will not separate us from his love any more than our sin does. In other words, whatever happens in this life, the outcome is guaranteed. The outcome is guaranteed. Remember, it's a done deal. So look at verse 37. No, Paul says, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You might sit there and say, well, I don't feel like I'm more than a conqueror. I don't feel like I've conquered anything. What is Paul saying here? Well, if you've been praying through the morning office, um, the the morning office lectionary has had us go through, we're in uh, 1 Samuel um currently so there's a strange thing that happens in samuel with king david and king saul isn't there Uh, the story goes that samuel anointed saul as israel's first king he makes a mess of things of course and god rejects him as king as a result he tells samuel instead go now go and anoint david to be king So David is the the youngest of several sons. He's the scrawniest. He's the the least significant. And God says, now I want you to to anoint him. And so he is anointed king. So now he's the rightful king of Israel. The strange thing is that until Saul dies, no one recognizes king. Uh, No one recognizes David as king. Not even David. In effect, there are two kings. And even if we say there's a true king and a false king, right, the text never indicates that David should have just taken Saul's throne by force. And the rest of the book is a tale about how David must live life knowing that he has been anointed, that he is the king, but he cannot yet sit on the throne. Why do I bring all of this up? Well, this is a similar situation to us today. Like David, something has happened to us, right? Something that the Holy Spirit has done. And instead of being anointed king, we are united to Christ. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, Christ has conquered death and the grave. We participate in that reality even now. But also like David, we live in a world that does not recognize this fact. Like David, we live between the already and the not yet. And we do this by faith and in hope. This is how St. Paul can say that we are more than conquerors, not through us, but through Christ it is Christ who has conquered sin and death, not you and me. But because it can be said of Christ that he conquered, it can also now be said of us that we are conquerors and more so. But notice something. He didn't say through Christ who conquered sin and death. That's not what he said. He said through Christ who loved us. And we're right back to Paul's earlier point that we are adopted sons and daughters of God through Christ, and the result is that there is nothing, nothing to be afraid of. That's Paul's point. Well, in the last few chapters, it kind of turned inward, looking at our suffering and trying to make sense of how we can suffer in a world when all of these glorious things in the heavenlies and with Christ has happened. So, I think it's appropriate at this point in Paul's argument in the Book of Romans that we. Get our minds off of ourselves now. Next week, he's going to make a drastic subject change where he's going to talk about uh, Israel and Israel's place in the plan of salvation. For now, Paul is saying, let go of your fear. Let go. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. The worst thing that could happen to us is not suffering and death, but to be separated from the love of Christ. And those he and those for whom he and those for the, and for those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. Paul says, for those who, for whom he justified and glorified. That's not going to happen. Separation from the love of Christ is not going to happen. Brothers and sisters, what would the church look like if we believed this and lived as if this were true, what would Mission St. James look like? What would Jackson, Tennessee look like? Tribulations and distress and persecutions are among us. I think, I believe in the coming decade, there will be much for Christians to fear coming up. I don't say that to, to scare everyone or be any kind of an alarmist. I don't think we're going to be ended, be fed to the lions or executed out in the streets. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think that jobs and entire occupations will be threatened as they require more of us than we can give as Christians. Relationships with relatives and with friends will be divided if they haven't Already. Jesus promised us that this would be the case. And for us, cultural compromise will be our great temptation. Now, none of us wants to be foolish and none of us wants to be obnoxious. And I don't see my role as a priest to raise up a political resistance against all of the ideologies that we face today. But I do take my responsibility as a priest seriously to raise up and lead a people who are as wise as serpents and innocents, innocent as doves. So I ask you, what are you afraid of today? I think one thing most of us are afraid of is to speak the truth in love. Now, there are a lot of jerks out there who are speaking the truth, but I don't think that they're speaking the truth in love. On the contrary, I think a lot are speaking the truth out of fear. That's not an option for us. So, how will you speak the truth and love? How will we as a church speak the truth and love? How are we going to assure others that in Christ's death our body of sin can also die? And how are we going to share the good news that human identity can now be found in the resurrected Jesus Christ rather than some other way through our sexuality or our gender or our politics or our race or whatever it is? My point is not not so much how good... My my point is that no matter how good Mission St. James does in our community... And no matter how much we may grow as a congregation, if we allow these fears to keep us from sharing the good news of the gospel in the name of tolerance or even love, I'm not sure what we will be called a true Christian and gospel-loving church. So listen to Paul's words as a cry here, his closing words. Not a cry unto battle, but a cry unto faith, hope, and love. For he says in verse 38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. So friends, there is nothing to be afraid of we are now inseparable from the love of Christ. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that you would raise us up to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We pray that you would raise us up to speak the truth in love. We pray that you would raise us up to not fear, to look around the world and and see what you have done and your death, resurrection, and all of the promises that come to us through that. That rather than looking at the world through the lens of fear, that we would be freed from that and we would see a world of beauty out there, a world that groans for the sons of God to be revealed. Lord, raise up your church, raise up Mission St. James, Lord, to be a light, a place of truth, but also a place of love. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.